Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is another special edition news podcast. Uh, if you don't know who I am, uh, my name's Kiefer. That's all I go by. Uh, it's a mononym. And I've been doing this series on the coronavirus because information keeps coming out. And then with every wave of information, there's crazy rhetoric and all ki- all kinds of batshit crazy starts propagating on the web, uh, whether it's Reddit or podcasts or whatever. Uh, luckily, with YouTube defunding podcasts or defunding videos that mention the coronavirus, that that amazingly wiped out a massive amount of misinformation. Uh, so clearly people were doing it and they're still doing it only for eyeballs which can generate revenue so on and so forth and the the media s- seems to be in that same place they you know they need a strong audience and they keep making everything sound as bad as possible so there are a few things i wanted to go over that are pretty pertinent right now again and uh one thing i can't say is my my initial assessment i i still think is correct uh, and I'm not the only one. If you think I'm crazy, uh, the latest Joe Rogan experience actually had on an expert in infectious diseases and possible pandemics, uh, Michael Osterholm. So you can check out that episode with Joe Rogan. I haven't gotten all the way through it, but I'm like three quarters of the way through. And basically everything I said two or three weeks ago is exactly what he's saying. Uh, so I wasn't off the mark and Again, anybody who had any sense of respons- responsibility and could and had the ability to understand statistics could have said the same thing. And we're a little farther down the road. Like I, I still don't think it's time to panic, uh, but this this is a pandemic. And like I said previously, we can we can compare it to the flu, even though there's a bunch of pseudo experts who are. They call themselves public intellectuals and, you know, they're saying stuff like, this is not the flu. You can't compare it to the flu. Actually, we, we can. It's a, it's a very fair comparison because it is spreading at a, a slower rate than the flu normally would, uh, but, it, but it is spreading at what we would expect for, for the flu, for a mild flu. So that's good. That gives us some idea of how fast it's going to spread and potentially how fast far it will spread and now we've got like really we've we've got some pretty solid numbers on mortality risk Uh, we also have a lot more information on is there going to be long-term damage from this hey i got this i got an email from somebody who was concerned about me saying that in 80% of cases, it's going to be pretty mild. And they, they were very upset because they said, well, coronaviruses are going to destroy the lungs. And if you get if you, if you get the disease, even if it's mild, it's going to destroy your lungs and you're going to live with that for the rest of your life. Well, I mean, I consider that extreme. That would be an extreme symptom. That definitely wouldn't be mild. But what they were doing and what they probably read or saw... And I, I didn't look at the link that they sent me because it was it was like a, a trash website. Uh, what what that website was doing though, I could tell from the title of the article, is they were comparing SARS, uh, which the outbreak was in two thousand three, 
for SARS. They were comparing SARS with the current coronavirus. And SARS is a coronavirus, but it is very different functionally, and it did do a lot of damage to people's lungs. We know this current coronavirus, even the drastic cases, so people get really sick and and require hospitalization but recover, we're not seeing lung damage at the moment. So again, even in the critical patients, they're not going to have long-term lung damage that we can see it, nothing like SARS. So, and in the mild cases, we're, we're not seeing any damage whatsoever. So, you know, even that kind of misinformation uh, can can really scare people. I mean, literally, the majority of people, eighty three percent of people who get this, it's going to be very mild, mild to the point that. You know that's what makes it so dangerous. It's mild to the point that you might not know what you have, and you feel well enough that you continue to spread this throughout the community, and you don't you don't do anything to isolate yourself or whatever. That's that's why I said in in this time and during any flu season, that should be the default behavior. If you feel sick, you should stay home. Now, of course, that doesn't limit the spread because you're contagious before you might start to develop symptoms, but it could limit it. Um, These are all important things to consider. Now, since this, since we can make some fair comparisons to the flu, we can also do some basic estimating on how many people we think will become uh, infected. Uh, And I'm, I'm going to do this primarily for the United States because that's where I have the best data uh, available for past years to see uh, what kind of infection rate we get for the flu. And especially one thing nice about it is I have infection rates for years where they completely missed on the correct flu vaccine. So that kind of gives us gives an outer reach of like how bad infection rates can be. And so worst case scenario for infection rate in the United States, and this is without people trying to do the right thing by, you know, as soon as they feel sick, isolating themselves and so on and so forth, we're probably looking at somewhere around 50 million Americans uh, are, are going to be infected before this peters out. And r- so keep that in mind because the current number of people infected in the U.S., I believe is still under a thousand at the moment and might have crested a thousand. So, you know, this is essentially an extended flu season. And again, it is no worse in general than a flu season. Um, but, But we are looking at mixed mortality rates. So what's really going to affect the mortality rate in the United States in particular and in any country is going to be the population's most infected not affected but infected so again i and um dr osterholm said identically what i said i said that uh, in the previous podcast i said i expected the mortality rate to be slightly higher overall in the united states because so many people are sick with some sort of co comorbidity 
um, they, you know, there's some kind of other metabolic disease going on, which increases the risk. So when we, and don't be terrified by these numbers and I'll put these numbers in perspective. So at the current average mortality rate that we're looking at and a guess at how many people are going to be infected in the United States, we're, we're going to expect somewhere between best case scenario 80,000 deaths are going to be likely from this outbreak in the United States uh, and on the the really far outside estimate which this this would be that the current max mortality rate well average mortality rate is going to hold uh, we're looking at possibly 400,000 deaths and this is just in the united states uh, due to this coronavirus outbreak and this doesn't include all the complicating deaths that can occur because supply chains have been cut off uh, medications may not be available for people who need them uh, things like that so i mean these are not these are obviously terrible numbers uh, but we, we have to put them in in perspective so on in the best case scenario you know, on average, every year, 40,000 people die from the flu. Last year, 61,000 people died. Uh, so these kind of infectious pandemics, which a, f a flu basically is every year in the United States, we usually do see a significant loss of life. And it's tragic. And we're, we're going to see that also with this coronavirus. Now, like you, I hope beyond hope that there's some way to get this under control and with people being cognizant of the fact that they might be contagious, staying at home can limit the spread. Uh, that would be fantastic. And we could see a lot lower numbers than that. We could. Well, I just want to try to give realistic ex expectations. And again, this is going to really depend on who gets hit with this infection. If mostly younger, healthy people who are out and about get this catch the virus, then we're not going to see numbers like that. But if we assume kind of a uniform distribution of people in the states with comorbidities and the and people who are uh, 65 and older, then then we could see that that outside number. So again, it's very important whether you feel sick or not. You probably don't want to go visit your parents or grandparents if they're in that critical high risk age range just don't just wait and this it's gonna it could be a long flu season but we'll i'll try to update you on when it might be more safe to go visit them at this time so you know i wanted to give people an, uh, a real kind of sense of what could happen out of this and what we could expect and some bounds on that so to, to put the two extremes of these values into perspective, every year about 90,000 Americans die uh, because of alcohol consumption. So this is both uh, chronic and acute alcohol uh, deaths. So, so the best case scenario is better than what happens every year just from alcohol consumption. Now, on the high side, the 400,000 potential victims in the United States, 
half a million Americans die every year from smoking-related diseases. So it, it gives you an idea of the scale of what this of what this coronavirus is on and also how it's being built up as this huge world-altering event when, you know, smoking is much worse. But again, we don't hear about those deaths. Uh, The flu every year is terrible. You know, for the last 20 years, 40,000 people every year die from the flu on average. I mean, these are terrible tragedies. And this coronavirus, unfortunately... Uh, is in that range of between alcohol deaths and smoking deaths and and it could and it can be right in line with like the worst flu years that we have so so that's what we can expect there and I just I wanted to make that clear so people understand like this is something to to take seriously but it's still not a reason to panic Again, you should take precautions, be careful, wash your hands, um, and don't count on any vaccine coming to the rescue anytime soon. Uh, And even that estimate of a year to a year and a half, I think is probably not going to be viable either. And I'll discuss that in a minute. It's not because I'm against vaccines. To be very clear, Childhood vaccines, like every kid should get those that can. Some people have compromised, some children have compromised immune systems and can't. Otherwise, they absolutely should. The whole theory that all these diseases disappeared because sanitation got so much better and so on and so forth. Well, that's been disproven because so many people decided not to vaccinate that we had a whole flurry of new deaths from measles and pertussis and all these things that we that were almost wiped out Uh, measles was wiped out in the u.s until the anti-vaxxers came along so i'm not anti-vaccine but there's a reason you shouldn't hope for the a coronavirus vaccine anytime soon uh, which i'll get into but i i also want to talk about some of the I thought it was funny because this was on Joe Rogan's podcast and somebody asked me this question a couple days ago or maybe it was yesterday about sauna and if being in the sauna, if that was okay or not. And I didn't understand what they were getting at until they they followed up and I I actually looked up research on why is it that the flu and these things tend to get their first initial hold in cool weather, in cold weather. And they, and, and there's, like, they don't really know, but this group had actually put together a really good theory, and they were able to test their theory. And it turns out that the cold air, the over-oxygenation that you get in cold winter months, actually makes the lungs more susceptible to these viruses taking taking root and because cold air holds more oxygen uh, and, and that's what happens so in the, the threshold seems to be about uh, 20 degrees celsius or that's about 65 degrees fahrenheit 
So when you're above the 65 degree mark, it's much more difficult for these viruses to take hold in your lungs, which is where most of them take hold. So being in the sauna, if you're not sick, you can't catch it if you're in the sauna. And if you go into the sauna with somebody who might be infected that you don't know that they are, you're likely not going to catch it from them in the sauna. Uh, so that's fine. If if you are having lung issues, then I would recommend a dry sauna and not a wet sauna that could stress your breathing in that situation. So, so saunas are totally fine, but they're not going to kill the coronavirus. They're not going to kill a flu. Uh, that's all garbage. I have I I didn't realize that's what they were asking at first, so I was just giving them the facts on yeah, if you can get in the sauna with somebody that has the coronavirus, and you're not going to get it. And, you know, that, that's something else possibly to keep in mind. If you can keep your house warmer than, say, 75 degrees Fahrenheit, I still think in Fahrenheit uh, most of the time. You know, so at least in your household, you have a less likely chance of spreading it and catching it for your other family members. So, so we'll get the sauna myth off the table uh, I, it's just so ridiculous. I think that's why I didn't even, I didn't even conceive of the fact that somebody was suggesting that it could kill the coronavirus. And I've also noticed that some of the public health messaging is being very misleading. And I think it's being misleading to help and try to calm people down. And that's if you've heard that the coronavirus, we always have coronaviruses and that's what's responsible for the, it's the type of virus that's responsible for the common cold. And I think that's being said to make you feel better that it's not a serious disease. Now this, and you might've also heard the phrase novel coronavirus. And what they mean by novel is it's just a new one that's jumped to humans. I, they, they shouldn't be using that. They should keep on track with like COVID-19 or if they want to give the full name of the virus strain. Um, but that's very misleading. So what causes a common cold is a rhinovirus, which is a type of enterovirus, which is completely different. Uh, there are like 160 serotypes of the rhinovirus that make us sick and give us a cold. And over 80% of all colds are caused by rhinoviruses. Only a small fraction, so about 10% of what we perceive of as a cold, cold symptoms, are caused by mild coronaviruses that have been in human populations for a long time. So those wouldn't be novel because they've been in humans for a long time and they're very mild and they just make cold-like symptoms. So that messaging is purposefully meant to mislead and make people think that this is much less of a threat than it is. It's not rhinoviruses and enteroviruses. I know of none that are deadly, this deadly, but a coronavirus can can run the gambit it you know it can be extremely mild and cause just a cold or it can be extremely vicious and rot out your lungs that's what SARS is SARS SARS had a death rate I think of uh, over 10% and then MERS which is the Middle Eastern respiratory I always forget what the S is 
Um, but MERS has a death rate of 20%. So those coronaviruses are incredibly deadly. But again, coronaviruses run the gambit. And luckily, the one that's spreading right now isn't that deadly. It's not as deadly as it could be. And it's not as damaging as it could be. So don't don't confuse that messaging. Don't think that this is mild or something to not worry about at all because it's a cold virus. It's not. Uh, that's very misleading language. And I, I can obviously offer several theories as to why that language is being used, uh, but it's, it's misleading. So it, it is something to be concerned about. Again, you shouldn't panic. Uh, you know, I'm in a situation where I had pneumonia as a child. And so whenever I get any type of respiratory infection, it hits my lungs really hard. I have to be really careful when I get sick to not overtax my lungs because I can very quickly get bronchitis. And from there, I could very, very easily suffer from pneumonia again. So like I have a reason to be extremely concerned about this coronavirus the COVID-19, but I'm still, I'm not panicked. I'm not worried. I haven't really changed my life. I do pay attention to the people around me. Are they sneezing out into the open? You know, what's this, what's the situation, but I'm, I'm also in a low infection rate area. Um, but it's, it's again, no reason to panic for most people, the vast, and even if I caught this, I would probably be fine. It would just be hell on my lungs and I would have a hard time sleeping from all the phlegm buildup. It would not be fun for me, uh, but I have no fear that I would die or anything like that. So it's, it's not a super mild cold virus, but it's also not worst case scenario. So keep that in mind. And I also wanted to touch on, I noticed there's a lot in the American media about, oh, we don't have the testing kits and this is a failure of government and blah, blah, blah. And we can't contain this if we don't have the testing kits. Well, I, I mean, I have to be honest, that's kind of a load of bullshit. Whether the testing kits were there or not, it would not have contained the spread of the virus. It could have. If we were testing everybody that arrived in the United States on every plane, on every boat, on every car, it might have possibly been able to slow the spread. But the testing at this point is for the post, well, even current, but post hoc, post hoc statistics. So all of this data will help inform us as to the possible threat of the next outbreak or another outbreak of this coronavirus. Getting tested, the only way it could stop or slow down the rate of spread, even if we'd had it a month ago, the only way that would have been possible is if, ev is if we tested everybody. I mean, literally everybody. So we knew who had it exactly and we quarantined them right away. That's never going to happen because if you get this virus and it's mild, you don't know if it's a cold, you don't know if it's a mild flu, you don't know if it's the coronavirus, but you should stay home. There's no reason to go to the hospital un unless you really feel a need to get tested. And then on top of that, when if it is severe, 
you know pretty quickly you have difficulty breathing, then that's when you go to the doctor and that's when the testing becomes important so the right treatment can be given. So the all of this media backlash that the government's ill-prepared, let me be clear, we are incredibly ill-prepared for this kind of event. But not having the testing kits is was not a like make or break situation it wouldn't have stopped the coronavirus from being in the united states and it wouldn't stop the coronavirus uh, from spreading something similar to the flu now i you know i hope people self-isolate if they are sick at all or they think they've had any exposure that will help more than anything else the testing kits would not do pardon my language wouldn't do shit in that situation, the only thing that can slow down or stop the spread of the coronavirus is a certain level of individual culpability for monitoring yourself or your friends or your possible exposure and self-isolating. That's it. The, the test would make no difference. The test will give us really important statistical information, both current and in the future. Uh, but again, it, it, it wouldn't make a huge difference. What it would do is change the numbers quickly. Like, because Americans I know are terrified. And I also know that now European populations are terrified, which is the British press is partially responsible for that. And I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but what it would do is make the numbers jump really fast because we would be able to identify everybody who came in who did have the coronavirus. And, and it's not that it became more infectious, it's just that suddenly we know more people had it because we had more tests. So, again, it's very important for the epidemiology of this pandemic. But as far as your health and your safety and limiting the spread, those testing kits don't mean crap. I mean, let's just be honest. So, if you go in and you're sick and you can't get tested... Um, you're, and you have some severe lung problems, there are still very basic things that they're going to have to do to treat you. And they might not even have on hand um, any other treatment options anyway. So it's, it's, not, it's not this huge critical issue that it's being made out to be. Um, I just, man, media has gotten so polarized, it's ridiculous, and they're willing to screw with people's sense of well-being and their sense of safety just to, to make a point. Um, you know, in, in this administration, which is Republican, you know, you see a large chunk of the more liberal-leaning media, and believe me, I am, I am not against liberal media or conservative media but you know it's just like when obama was president uh the conservative media was very harsh on him continuously for everything well now the tables have turned now the left-leaning media is incredibly harsh on the republican administration for everything and they're trying to turn everything into a terrifying issue uh that's incredibly irresponsible when both sides do it and because it's so polarized both sides are being incredibly irresponsible on both extremes you have one side scaring the shit out of people you have the other side saying oh no this isn't this is absolutely nothing to worry about it's the cold 
you know, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, go back to work. Spread it to all your friends. Who cares if you kill a couple dozen people accidentally because of that and because you went to gr- to visit your grandparents in their retirement home. Um, so both of those positions are incredibly irresponsible. Uh, so, you know, that covers a lot of the stuff in the media right now that could be confusing or could be causing you angst that shouldn't be. Uh, and the next big one and the one that's that's really spread angst across Europe and I'm sure I've seen it several times in the U.S. news cycle is what's going on in Italy. So Italy went from quarantining just the northern part of the country to the entire country. The entire country of Italy right now is quarantined. So like you can't get flights in or out. You can't cross borders. And <clears throat> they've, they've seen big jumps in the number of cases. But again, that was because of testing. They were able to test more people, especially now that this quarantine is going on. So they just now can confirm more cases of the coronavirus. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a significant number. I I forget what the number is. Uh, when I last checked, uh, they're probably at, um, I don't know. Actually, I don't remember what it was the last time I checked. They could be up to 10,000 cases at this point. But another thing that is terrifying Europe and the British media is really harping on this. Every article out of the British media, every news program that I've seen out of the UK is calling this like the death virus. I mean, it it sounds horrible. And that's because Italy currently has a higher average mortality rate than we've seen almost anywhere else. And of course, that's like, oh my gosh, it became more deadly from wherever the original source was and it's mutating or something or other. But that's, that's just not the case. Italy has the oldest average population, the second oldest average population of any country, second only to Japan. So the so a large a much larger proportion of Italy's population is in the high risk category that's why we're seeing in Italy specifically we're seeing a higher average mortality rate because there's a larger percentage of the population is in the very high risk category now, remember if if you're 70 or older your there's a one in four chance that you'll die if you catch the virus. It's very, it's deadly serious in that population. And that's very important to keep cognizant. Like it didn't get more deadly. The European version's not more deadly. It's just Italy's demographics, unfortunately, are going to lead to more fatalities. So again... I'm just trying to quell these media messages that are being sensationalized or overly downplayed. Either of those, um, they're not indicative of reality. You, you have to just dig a little bit deeper to understand why things look different, where they look different. And it pretty much helps to quell any sense of panic or worry or... Or it also actually 
helps to quell being too cavalier. This is not something you should be completely cavalier about. You should you should pay attention. Um, that's really important. Now, the last thing I want to touch on are treatment options for this because at the moment they're they're looking at treatment options. They don't have any that are approved and there's a lot of talk of the vaccine i know president trump said there could be a vaccine in two to three months that would never never happen um on the outside it could be a year to a year and a half um, but here's something that we need to keep in mind sear i'm sorry sars was an incredibly deadly and devastating coronavirus so even if you survived you were going to have lung damage you were going to have permanent damage for the rest of your life it would affect you for the rest of your life so when that happened they actually got on the ball immediately they started trying they they got the virus sequenced they started creating vaccine candidates and they actually got to four candidates and they made it all the way up through primate trials and they were getting ready for human trials and I've noticed also in these news cycles like Vox Media, these other places that are looking for eyeballs, they're saying, oh, we've got this SARS vaccine just sitting there that we might be able to use for this coronavirus. Well, that's total bullshit. So first of all, it was 10 years later from when they were developing the vaccine candidates that they had they had vaccines that were finally tested through primate and mouse models and mouse models that kind of mimicked humans as, as closely as they could in those situations. That was a 10 year gap. And it's because it turns out coronavirus is not that easy to create a vaccine for. And also I've noticed a lot of these reports, they've said, oh, well, everybody lost interest. So they lost funding. So it, that's why it never went to human trials. That's not true. Of the four candidates that were available and ready for possible human testing in 2012, all four of those candidates, when they tried them in primate, in primate models and in mouse models, those vaccines actually caused a rebound effect. So you had the vaccine, you would get the vaccine and you'd be quote unquote vaccinated. Now, if the when the virus was then introduced into the organ organism, they had symptoms significantly worse and almost, I mean, worse than the original virus. And this can happen in some vaccines. Um, uh, immunopathology is basically what it's called. It's an immunopathological response. The, the vaccine it doesn't make you sick, but if you're then introduced to the virus that it, you were vaccinated against, supposedly, then the viral response is much, much worse. All four candidates demonstrated that. So they were all basically shelved for human trials. And there were no more outbreak of SARS. So that 10-year stretch resulted in four vaccine candidates, all of which had a high chance of making somebody who was vaccinated with them, it would have made SARS more deadly for those people. So these weren't just shelved because everybody lost interest. 
Um, but that case is trying to be pitched now for one, again, um, it to make it newsworthy. It's more newsworthy to say, oh, well, we had these four vaccines. We just ran out of money, so we didn't test them. Uh, that's not at all what happened. The vaccines were not viable. Uh, and again, like viruses in general, there's two types of viruses. There's DNA viruses, and those are very long-lasting, and they're also often hard to combat. So HIV is a DNA virus. Uh, hepatitis is a DNA virus. But, and those are usually long-lasting infections that stay in the body for a long time. Herpes is a DNA virus. It stays in the body for a long, long time, and it can stay active in the body for a long, long time. Now, on the flip side, you have RNA viruses, and that covers enteroviruses, so like the rhinovirus, the common cold, coronaviruses are RNA viruses, flu viruses are RNA viruses, Ebola is an RNA virus. And they're actually, they're particularly difficult to have any type of long-term vaccine for, or even potentially a short-term vaccine. Like even the flu vaccine isn't that great. And that's why I always hedge on like other vaccines, like proven beyond reasonable doubt. Flu, I mean, a lot of people get the flu vaccine and still get the flu. And supposedly it makes it more mild. Um, like I said, the, the evidence the the evidence from before when hardly anybody ever got vaccinated to now when 75% of the, of the U.S. population gets vaccinated, like none of the statistics have changed. So it, it just, what that says to me is there needs to be way more research and what it also says is that RNA viruses are fundamentally difficult to create vaccines for. And odds are, even if we get a vaccine for this coronavirus, if we do manage to create one that works on this version, it's an RNA virus. RNA viruses mutate very quickly. That's why that's why coronaviruses jump species so well. They're an RNA virus, so as they move from species to species, the the versions that can hold in a new species are the versions that had a greater potential for mutation. That means it's easier for them to jump to the next species as well. So RNA viruses are really hard to make vaccines for. And I would not hold my breath for a viable COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, like I said, SARS, 10-year project, at the end of that, four candidates, and they all would have made you more likely to die from SARS. And MERS, which is more deadly, that's the Middle Eastern uh, respiratory infection that caused by a different type of coronavirus, like they've got no vaccine for whatsoever. Uh, they haven't been able to develop one. So, you know, I wouldn't put any eggs in that basket at all. But what we do have are antivirals, which can block the replication of the viruses. And these, I guarantee these will be the future of how we fight these pandemics. The vaccines are always going to be too far behind the curve because when a new virus jumps, we need at least a year and a half, two years, 
if everything goes right to get a vaccine. And, you know, that just doesn't happen that often. I mean, SARS is a very good example of that. You know, 10 years down the tubes for four candidates that just would kill people faster. Uh, I don't think that's what you want to come out of your vaccine program. And it, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost a ton of money to develop these vaccines. And that's, and right now, you should really care about how this emergency $8 billion uh, fund package for fighting the coronavirus is going to be spent because a lot of it is going to go towards vaccine production. A vaccine that even if everything goes right, might not be good. I mean, a year from now, this this coronavirus could mutate and then the vaccine that's produced would just be totally ineffective. I'm not saying we shouldn't be trying to develop vaccines, but I mean like 10 companies, maybe more, are vying for chunks of this $8 billion to try to create a vaccine. And I have a feeling it'll go the same route as SARS. There'll be a huge rush of getting funds. They'll spend some of it for development and then everybody will forget about COVID-19 and like suddenly the vast majority of those initial vaccines will go nowhere, but the money won't come back. And that's your money in the United States. That is your money. That's taxpayer money that's being spent for this. Now, what would make way more sense is the antivirals. And one of the promising ones right now is remdesivir. I've heard it pronounced different ways, remdesivir. Uh, so you can add your accents to the syllables however you like. But and in this case, it's more expensive, and I have a feeling that's I don't know if that is production cost or pro- profit margin cost. I, I honestly don't know. But here's an interesting statistic for you. So of that, so let's say we waste billions of dollars trying to develop a vaccine that could, realistically be completely useless so we could spend billions of dollars doing that or the, the the these antivirals are in trial or we could work on developing antivirals that limit the infection rate of several different kinds of viruses so if remdesivir works well against this coronavirus it will work well against all coronaviruses so that means SARS that means MERS that means COVID-19 that means whatever next one comes out there's a it's going to have a very high probability of being effective an effective treatment once you've caught it so let's say in this situation COVID-19 And if we look at how many people will likely get infected in the United States, about 50 million, and you look at how many of those cases are going to be severe, uh, that knocks it, that actually knocks it down to about um, 3.5 million people. And even at the cost of $100 a dose, there's enough money. Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah, that's about right. Uh, those numbers are about right. There's enough money from that eight billion. So, just going off of these current statistics, 
to give every single one of the critical patients of that 50 million who get infected to have each of them covered with these antivirals. So just having these antivirals on the shelf and handing them out as needed would only cost a total of $3 billion. End of story. So the future of preparing for these pandemics, particularly coronavirus pandemics, the future of preparing for that is going to be stockpiling these antivirals and making sure that we're prepared with enough for per, you know, predictive infection rates. And the good news is usually the more deadly a virus is, the less it spreads. So for example, Ebola kills you pretty quick and it's a 90% death rate. That prevents it from spreading over wide, wide areas. I mean, you just die too fast. You get sick too fast, so you can't spread it. SARS, again, like short curve, very deadly. You don't get a chance to spread it. Now, this COVID-19 is right in the sweet spot. It's not deadly to most people. You will have it for several days before you feel anything. And for most people, when they get sick, they won't even know it's this deadly vi- this virus that's deadly to people 70 years and older or people who have high blood pressure or diabetes. They, they just won't know. So this, this virus is in the sweet spot of the pandemic profile. And luckily, those kind of sweet spot viruses are not the most deadly. So we, we could make a reasonable estimate of how many antivirals we need on hand for the next coronavirus and we you know we're developing antivirals for all of these different rna viruses and there's been some promising new research on potential antivirals that would be feasible for every virus um, because of there's a certain part of our dna that the viral rna has to hijack to get reproduced and we can turn that we found some substances some antivirals that can actually turn that off in humans for a little while, which means the virus could not spread within the body. So I think that's the future of how we need to prepare for these pandemics. Um, And it's conversations like this. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time over the last few days, like looking at this and looking at what's viable and trying to understand our vaccines, the way to go is that $8 billion going to get is a large chunk of it going to get thrown away for no return? I, I'm very concerned about those things because the healthcare system in the United States is like a disaster, and this just adds to the disaster. Uh, so th- that's why I really appreciate if people share these podcasts because a lot of the things I, I present on here are you know my own novel thoughts, and they they could be misguided, um, but I. Th- try to only present what I think is worthy of consideration. And you should care. Even if you don't want to share this podcast, you should try to be vocal in other ways because that's your money that's being spent. And where the government should be spending it, the government shouldn't spend $8 billion. Well, it shouldn't spend, let's say, maybe half of that $8 billion to give to pharmaceutical companies to develop a vaccine that you will probably have to pay for. So you paid for it twice. You paid for it to be developed and you paid for it 
to have it administered when you need it. That's insane. Whereas these antivirals, they have a market outside of these pandemic situations. They have a wide market, which means the companies are willing to invest their own money to develop these antivirals. And then your money that the government takes in taxes would be spent to directly buy the antivirals and have a stock on hand. That is the best use of your money so that we can be prepared for the next pandemic. And make no mistake, there will be another pandemic. Like I said before, we can expect these to accelerate. And I I was off a little bit on the numbers. So the last, no, no, actually I wasn't because 2012 was MERS and it actually, it jumped uh, to South Korea. And luckily it was deadly enough that it didn't spread from there. But, you know, and so this one is almost 10 years later. We should, we should be expecting to see another one in the next four to five years. That's not a very long amount of time, and we need to get prepared for this. The whole world does. So, you know, these are important things to consider, at least consider, and these are important conversations that we kind of need to get into the public sphere so that people can be protected and that money's not wasted and doesn't end up just getting funneled into from the hands of the many, the U.S. population, into the hands of the very, very few, um, the people at the corporations who, you know, realize that the vaccine is probably not a worthwhile venture. In, In this case, it's definitely worth doing the work on but we sh- we shouldn't be putting all of our eggs in that basket by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we should be, we should be focusing on the treatments. Um, so I think that's that's all I had for this update. Uh, just to be clear, vaccine your make sure you get your kids vaccinated. Give them the whole battery of vaccines when it's time to get them. Don't stretch them out. That does absolutely nothing. Uh, if we know anything about autism, the one thing we've learned is that it starts sometime in the womb. So it couldn't possibly be the vaccinations. And w- we really need to step back for a second because one of the most vocal and convincing people in the anti-vaxxer movement when it started was Jenny McCarthy, former Playboy Playmate, which I make no judgments on whatsoever. I have no judgment on playboy or the adult film industry none of that but what i do make a judgment on is she wrote an article talking about all the cocaine and i believe heroin and all the drugs she was doing for at least a year while she was at the playboy mansion she was doing a lot of drugs it sounded like and she made it sound like in her article that she was just drugged into semi-consciousness for a year. I mean, she made it very vivid, all the things she did, when she did them, so on and so forth. Well, what we know, one thing we do know, is that women, if they have any prenatal use of opioids, whether they're prescription opioids or they're heroin or any of those things, they have a very high risk of giving birth to a child with autism. 
So instead of really taking some sort of self-culpability and saying, well, you know, it could have been my previous lifestyle could have contributed to my child's condition. Oh, no, it had to be vaccines. Vaccines had to do it. It couldn't have been her fault. Um, And also on that note, it turns out that if males are using uh, pot around that time, it can actually affect sperm in a way that increases the chances of autism. Um, So if you are thinking of conceiving, you probably, if you're a male, you probably don't want to be doing smoking pot or taking THC at any time around your planned conception. Um, And for women, I mean, at the very least, stay away from opioids before you have children. Um, Again, so, you know, you know, we really need to put the people under scrutiny who are saying something that is so completely opposed to the scientific consensus and the real world effects. We just knew vaccines worked. And uh, what was his name? Andrew Wakefield, I think, was the one who first did the vaccine autism connection. I, I mean, when his work was analyzed, he, he, he just basically, they're like, this date, this data is all garbage he just admitted he just made it up he just made it up for publicity and he published a scientific paper for publicity that's it he wanted to be a famous doctor he was the paper was redact well retracted and he lost his medical license he'll never work in the medical field again but it took hold and since then Millions of dollars have been been spent on follow-up studies, which not all of it is bad. I think it was, you know, it was good to make sure. But, I mean, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of studies now that show that there is no link between the childhood vaccine panel that they should get and any condition that we know of at the moment. Other than, you know, there used to be an oral polio vaccine and that one did contribute to one case per million of polio Um, but because of that that's been completely taken taken out you cannot get that one anymore at least in the united states it's back to the injectable and the injectable is 100 percent safe there are no cases of contracting a live polio virus uh, from that so the, the vaccines are amazingly safe. I mean, amazingly safe. It's probably one of the safest things you can do, um, mostly because it will keep you, your community, and your children safe from, I mean, really horrendous diseases. Like, I, I was dating somebody in when I lived in California several years ago, and her daughter hadn't been vaccinated and she was all up in arms because the schools wouldn't let her go without her vaccinations. And, you know, she hadn't even had whooping cough, which is pertussis. She's like, well, you know, I don't care if she gets those. She has a strong immune system. She'll be fine. Whooping cough in children can cause permanent brain damage. I mean, this is very serious. Measles. Also, permanent brain damage. Yeah, they might recover. But you're running a high risk of giving your child lifelong problems, even if they survive. Is it worth that? I mean, just 
just to believe in some fairy tale that there's no evidence for, just to believe Jenny McCarthy and the other doctors that started writing books to cash in on her celebrity, which is all she was leveraging. She was just leveraging her celebrity to get on talk shows to blame anything but her lifestyle, which was the highest probability cause of her child's autism. Uh, so anyway, that's my, that's my rant on vaccines. People wanted me to talk about them. And I, I said, you know, I know about that a little more intimately than most people will. And that's because here in Serbia, some of the vaccination rates, there's been an anti-vaxxer movement amongst celebrities here that's filtered down into the population. And some of their vaccination rates are terrible. It's like 50%. So they have no herd immunity against a lot of these just really common diseases, uh, measles, pertussis, whatever. And what I didn't know, because I had always lived in a community that had high enough vaccination rates for herd immunity, is that whooping cough, pertussis, you, if you're in an area that's not vaccinating properly, you should get a booster every 10 years. Well, I didn't know that. And uh, the second year that I was here in Serbia, I caught whooping cough. And it was one of the most miserable experiences of my life. I mean, I woke up several times through the night not breathing because my lungs had be, had basically almost shut down from the infection. And, you know, I woke up, I had inhalers on hand to get my lungs opened back up. It was a terrifying experience as an adult. As a child, I would have suffered amazingly long-term uh, repercussions from that infection. Um, and again, it was probably worse for me because of my past history with pneumonia. I mean, that was scary. And that was two weeks of that, waking up in the middle of the night, multiple times per night usually, not breathing. It was terrifying. All because some celebrities here jumped on the anti-vaxxing bandwagon. So the, these, are the, the, these are the things that can happen uh, if, if you neglect the glaringly massive bodies of proven science. Now, again, some things are speculative, but vaccinations are not. They are absolutely not. And notice I'm being very careful. I made my case for why I'm not sure about the flu vaccine, but very specifically the flu vaccine. And I also made my case for why I have little confidence that there will ever be a coronavirus vaccine. Um, There could be. I just, I have little confidence at this moment in time based on past efforts to create any kind of coronavirus vaccine. Um, And the cold is a good example. They've been trying to develop a vaccine for the common cold since 1953. Yeah, we haven't gotten anywhere on that one. And it's because it's an RNA virus that has mutated so many times. Like I said, there's 160 serotypes. Um, So, all right. I think that finishes up my rant. I hope everybody finds this helpful hopefully this is the last one i can do or that i'll need to do for a while this clears up tons of information and it kind of paints a roadmap for you of when you hear this sensational stuff there's probably underlying information that brings it back around to reality and the reality is this is something to be concerned about it's not going to alter life 
as we know it. We'll get through it. Most people will not even notice uh, this pandemic other than the societal changes that might take place like restaurants being closed and flights being canceled, things like that. Um, But if you found this useful and you're hearing this and you are not on any of my email lists, like feel free to sign up. Go to body.io. Super simple. And down on the left-hand side, there's a little pop-up where you can enter your email if you want. Um, But otherwise, I encourage you to share this information. Hopefully keep people grounded and not panicky and also not too cavalier about this whole situation. And you know, it'll be several months before it finally plays out. Uh, That's just the way it's going to be. But again, uh, no no reason to panic. Just be vigilant and think about others. If you feel sick or you could have possibly had exposure, uh, stay away from retirement centers, uh, assisted living centers. Absolutely stay away from those places. Like I said, in Seattle, a lot of the first, the initial deaths in the United States were because it was introduced into an assisted living center, which is filled with a high risk population. Uh, so I think that's it. And uh, I'm actually going to launch my new podcast name. I'm not going to announce the name until it launches, but all of the future podcasts will be under that moniker. And as always, uh, feel free to ask any questions. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DHKiefer, K-I-E-F-E-R. Um, you can ask me questions on there about this. Uh, you can send them into support. And uh, that's, that's at body.qa is the page that goes directly to our support, uh, customer service center and support center. So you can go straight there. And, you know, ask any questions, and uh, if it's something I need to answer directly, I'll try to. And if it's something really important, then I'll include it in a podcast uh, so everybody can benefit. All right, until next time.